Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is a frequent guest on our program, a fellow by the name of John Hood. He used to be John Hood. I think he's still John Hood. And he is the president of the John William Pope Foundation, amongst other things. And of course, he's been a very frequent guest on our program through the years, and we always value his his opinions and thoughts, even though sometimes they may disagree with me. Even though, even though, John, how are you? I am doing just fine. Uh, I, 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 it's painful to disagree with you, but sometimes it's just required for the the future health <laughs> and safety of our republic. Well, but very I think, rarely. I think that's fine. Okay, so. We've uh, let, let's start off by talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court has had a number of rulings, including rulings on state courts and redistricting, and the uh, UNC Harvard uh, affirmative action admissions case. So, why don't you bring us up to date and your thoughts on those two uh, areas of concern for which the Supreme Court has shared their wisdom with us? Well, let's start with the first of the two decisions that came out that involved North Carolina. This was the one uh, regarding the redistricting case. Now, in a funny way, the, the Supreme Court in this case uh, didn't really have a specific grievance to, to adjudicate because the Republican leaders of the legislature drew maps uh, for their districts, for Congress and for the state legislature. There were uh, lawsuits, as there always are. Eventually, the case went up to the North Carolina Supreme Court, and last year they found that the districts had violated the state constitution in a variety of ways and ordered the districts be redrawn. Uh, One of the things that, I mean, they did redraw them, but one of the other things that uh, Speaker of the House Tim Moore did was file a federal lawsuit arguing that North Carolina's uh, judiciary, including its Supreme Court, don't really have any uh, proper role in overseeing state legislatures drawing congressional maps, not the legislative maps, not state districts, but federal districts, because the U.S. Constitution uh, specifically authorizes state legislatures, doesn't say state governments, it says state legislatures will determine the time and place and manner of federal elections, including districts. And so uh, Speaker Moore's argument is, the North Carolina Supreme Court shouldn't have intervened on the congressional maps because this is a legislative prerogative and the state courts don't have any role. The federal courts do, he grants, but state courts no, or at least not in this form. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected that argument. They found that state courts can uh, rule on even congressional maps. For example, if a state constitution has a provision that governs congressional districts, then the legislature has to follow it or the courts can enforce that. There could be other kinds of provisions in state constitutions that limit the drawing of congressional maps. And therefore, says the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, when the state, when the U.S. Constitution says state legislatures, they don't just literally mean only the people sitting in the legislative chambers. They mean state legislatures as part of a state's government, constitutional government. So like in, not in North Carolina, but in other states, a governor can veto a congressional map, a a redistricting bill. Now they can't do it in North Carolina, but in other states, that's part of the legislative process. And furthermore, there are some states that have authorized like commissions to draw the first draft 
of maps and the state legislature votes them up or down, or maybe not even that. So there's all these other things that happen within a state's constitutional framework. And the U.S. Supreme Court is saying the legislature does have the appropriate role in drawing maps, but these other voices, these other parts of state government can play a role according to their state constitutions. And in the case of North Carolina, in theory, the judiciary could intervene. Now, the unlike what you might have heard in a lot of the media coverage, the U.S. Supreme Court was not having anything to say about North Carolina's congressional maps. That is a moot point. I mean, the maps are going to be redrawn. The uh, newly constituted North Carolina Supreme Court has already overturned the previous state Supreme Court decision. So there actually wasn't anything left to decide about North Carolina's congressional maps. That's already taken care of or will be soon. What this really was about was more of a theoretical question. And in fact, some people argued the U.S. Supreme Court shouldn't have even taken this case because it was a moot point. There wasn't anything left to any dispute to settle. That's not how the justices saw it. They took the case. They issued an opinion. And in practical terms, Don, what it means is uh, in the future and not just in North Carolina, uh, you can't go to federal court and say, I represent the legislature. We drew maps. State court said they weren't any good. And that doesn't matter because only we have the power. The, the U.S. Supreme Court is saying, no, that's not a good enough argument. It is possible that the state court has gone too far or is encroaching on legislative prerogatives. And that's something that, to be adjudicated at the time that happens. But as a categorical matter, the uh, the idea of an independent legislature, that the only only actors in the drama when it comes to congressional or federal elections is the legislature. That is something the Supreme Court did not accept. So that's an important decision. But its practical effect on North Carolina, in my opinion, is basically nil. It's an important future uh, precedent. But the other decision, the the decision on racial preferences for the University of North Carolina and for Harvard. I want to go back to finalizing this. So now uh, I understand that the uh, current General Assembly will be looking at redistricting at the end of this session, or will it be a special session? It'll be a special session, I gather, in in like uh, the fall, like September or something. That's when they will redraw the maps, and then we'll have a filing period for the 2024 elections, and we'll see what those maps look like. They'll be substantially different, I suspect. Uh, so that's going to happen. That Even if the Supreme Court had ruled the other way, that would have happened. So my point is, that was not really in question. That was always going to happen because of events happening within North Carolina. The the, the current Supreme Court uh, threw out the previous Supreme Court's ruling there. Now, the now when you say the new districts, are you talking about congressional as well as general assembly districts? Yeah, you should you should expect a a, a, a whole new set of districts. And uh, the forecast, of course, will be that there will be probably drawn in a way that there will be a larger majority of uh, the congressmen who will be actually in Republican leaning districts. Is that I would guess I would guess that is correct. Yes. Um, I I think that if the Republicans go for broke and try to stack the deck at like, you know, 11 R's and three D's or something like that, that it will that won't fly or that there are, in fact, some uh, racial gerrymandering cases that they have to take into consideration too. But yes, the districts are going to change. There's no question about it. The Republicans will probably net seats out of it. Okay, that's a fair assessment. Now everybody has an up-to-date opinion on that. And we'll know, I guess, 
by the end of October? I would guess so, yes. Well, thank you for that. Now, the other case, John, uh, bring us the background on that and uh, what the Supreme Court said. Well, this case has been going on for many years. It was litigated, obviously, in district court, went up to the Court of Appeals, and now the Supreme Court. There were two separate cases, but they were combined here, and I think properly so, because the same organization, Students for Fair Admissions, filed both of these lawsuits, one against the oldest private university in the country, Harvard, and the other against the oldest public university in the country, the UN's yeah, University of North Carolina. It's fair to say at this point in time that they're not necessarily picking on these two schools. They are setting precedent with these two schools. Yeah, I think it was, I mean, that both of these schools were engaged in the activities that have been struck down. But I think that the, the symbolic significance, what I just underlined about the Harvard and UNC being sort of storied institutions in the history of higher education in America, that, that was not an accident. That was clearly what they chose to do. They weren't saying North Carolina is horrible and South Carolina, Virginia are fine. We know that most selective institutions of higher education engage or it did engage or has have in the past engaged in some kind of racial discrimination along the lines that the Supreme Court has just struck down. So what they said was you cannot use race uh, in the as a category. You know, the, the fact that someone is a member of a particular race cannot be used as a plus factor or anything. I mean, previous decisions have been muddier about this. They had constrained the use of racial preferences, but not really prohibited them. Well, the Supreme Court, the majority decision by the Chief Justice, basically just cut that Gordian knot and said, we're just not going to have this anymore. Um, And I think they should have. I mean, no secret what I've I've spent a lot of (laughs) the last several years trying to prepare UNC and everybody who went there, works there, loves it, prepare them for the fact that they would absolutely lose this case. And they did, and they should have. And so what has happened is um, the the various procedures that UNC and other institutions use to try to engineer a racial or ethnic uh, set of, of targeted percentages or ranges or something, that's out. Now, there are other ways that you can pursue a diverse student body that would not transgress this this decision or the Equal Protection Clause or any of the other federal laws that we already have. For example, remember that California, Texas, Florida, Michigan, and other states, they already got rid of this years ago. Okay, This is not something like it's every every institution in the country did it, only the institutions where it was still legally permissible by state law. In many places, including big places, California, Texas, and Florida, this is already illegal. This is already clearly illegal, and they don't do it. Does that mean that there aren't any uh, racial or ethnic minorities in these uh, universities? Of course not. It just means that they use other means. For example, you could prefer people on the basis of they're the first person in their family to go to college. You could take poverty or some kind of other socioeconomic status into consideration. One way that some states do it, I'm not necessarily advocating this, I'm not sure this is a good idea. Sometimes states simply accept that a certain top percentage of students from each high school. So if you went to a high school in a poorer area and you were in the top 3% or 5% of your class, uh, you would be likely to get in even if, if you had been at a high school in a more fluent area, you weren't going to be in the top three or 5% of the class. So there are other ways you can do this that are not race conscious 
And that is something that people have argued for years. That's something the court outlined. Um, so, and there are other ways you could, for example, intervene early in young people's lives to help make them better prepared to do well in high school and to do well in standardized tests and to get involved in more extracurricular activities and in other words, strengthen your case to be admitted to a highly selective institution. Now, again, we're only talking about the UNC Chapel Hills and Harvard's and University of Virginia and places like that. Lots of public universities, including many in North Carolina, aren't that selective. And this really wasn't that big an issue anyway. But for those institutions, and they're important, NC State, UNC, et cetera, they're not going to be able to use these preferences anymore. I hope they're prepared. I know that they've been preparing for losing this case for years. I hope their preparation does not involve attempts to evade the law. <laughs> uh, but I'm afraid there will be some of some attempts to evade this decision. But I think it was necessary. It was long since overdue. And it's not unprecedented. It's been done in lots of other places already. Well, thank you for bringing us a summary of those two Supreme Court rulings and how they affect North Carolina. Our guest is John Hood, uh, and we will turn to other topics in the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers, and that will begin right after we take time out for these messages. Excuse me. I know you have a nine o'clock, so I'll keep this short. I'm the business suit in the back of your closet. You wore me nearly every day before your office went, quote, casual. I used to be the CEO of your closet. Now I'm just that one intern no one ever talks to. I always thought you'd circle back with me, get granular, keep me in the pipeline. But nada, nothing. Don't you remember the McKittrick presentation? You spilled coffee on me and I still looked amazing during the breakout talkback Q&A. So I think it's time for me to move on. I've got a great resume and I absolutely crush it in interviews, okay? Let's make this a clean break. Shift the paradigm. The only thing I ask is that you think outside the box here and do this. Take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a difference. Your donations to Goodwill create new jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Watch out! They got me! The galaxy is safe once again. In the pretend universe, kids play with pretend guns. In the real world, it's up to us to make sure they don't get their hands on a real gun. If you have a gun in the house, keep it locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with John Hood, who's the president of the John William Pope Foundation. And uh, John, of course, is well known as a conservative. And so for that, I, I acknowledge that right off the bat so that people will know where he's coming from, because I'm going to bring up the Trump indictments and the uh, uh, whole situation involving uh, President, former President Trump, uh, not only the actions, but also his reactions and where you think this is going to lead not only for Trump, but also for the Republican Party nationally and locally. That's a big lead in, John. You can just take off. <laughs> well, I would say that the uh, sort of like we were talking about in the previous segment about the uh, racial preferences case at, at UNC Chapel Hill. If if anybody was truly shocked that Chapel Hill lost that case, uh, I don't think they've been following the news very closely and, and they've been getting bad advice. 
And similarly, if anybody was shocked that former President uh, Trump would be indicted for violations of the relevant federal laws related to uh, records, uh, then again, haven't been following the news very closely or you've been getting bad legal advice. And unfortunately, one of the individuals that got bad legal advice was Donald Trump, who apparently has been told by some lawyers and people pretending to be lawyers that uh, these aren't really public records. These aren't really subject to this, these laws. These are personal records of the president. Uh, an earlier version of the defense of the president having class having taken classified material uh, is, well, I mean, he, he just automatically declassified everything when he was president. It's kind of a questionable argument. Unfortunately, they have Trump on tape saying he never declassified these things. I mean, he would be like the most uh, frustrating client to have if I were an attorney, <laughs> somebody you, you construct a maybe reasonable sounding legal defense. And then your client goes on television and says it isn't true or uh, records a conversation with someone else admitting that it isn't true. Uh, I, I just I, this was I, in other words, no excuse for being shocked by this. The best argument that Trump defenders have on this classified information case is, uh, well, what about these other people that have misused classified documents? That's a fair point. Obviously, Hillary Clinton famously had a server where she was using a private server to engage in emails while she was secretary of state, some of which were really create the, they were creating public records as they went. It's not clear that that was handled legally. I, I agree that she should have been prosecuted or something more serious happened to her. Obviously, President Biden himself has taken some classified records home multiple places. Former Vice President Pence did so. There have been other cabinet secretaries, uh, military officers who've done this in the past. Here's the difference, though. I'm not going to say this is the difference in the case of Hillary Clinton, because I don't think it is. I think she deserved to be prosecuted. In some of these other cases, certainly in the Mike Pence case, because he's explained this very clearly, uh, you can imagine any former official leaving the White House, the residence of the vice president, a cabinet office, and having classified documents inadvertently mixed in or mistakenly, you know, that box shouldn't have gone home, but it did kind of thing. And then it's sitting around in a warehouse or sitting around in an office. And then the relevant federal officials say, hey, did you take this box of papers on such and such? And the role of the official at that point is to say, I'm very sorry, you're right, I didn't mean to, here they are. Okay. In that case, it would be unreasonable to prosecute those officials. Uh, at least that's what I think. I think that is a reasonable understanding. That is, that is a reasonable understanding of what happened in Mike's Pen Mike Pence's case. I don't know what happened in Joe Biden's case, but maybe. Hillary Clinton's case, no. She, mind, she, she willingly evaded the law. And in Donald Trump's case, the evidence suggests that he did the same thing, that he willingly, knowingly evaded the law. That's the allegation. We'll see how the trial plays out. Now, that's the legal question. And I do think as a republic of laws, we should enforce the laws against everyone in an equal fashion who, viol who, who, who does something comparable. Again, he didn't just inadvertently take records home. The, the, the record, the, the, the allegation, the indictment suggests that he stonewalled federal uh, agencies attempted to get them back, that he instructed his lawyers to provide misleading information. There's all this sort of obstruction of justice stuff, which again, doesn't apply to the Pence case. And well, I don't know about the Biden case. 
Um, so that's the legal question. We should absolutely be a, a nation of laws, and it doesn't matter who you are. You have to abide by the laws, and if you willingly and repeatedly uh, violate the laws, refuse to c- comply, then something has to happen to you. But a lot of people were assuming that this would be a political event, like once he was prosecuted, once he was indicted even, that that would be the end of Donald Trump's political career. Um, and that, I think, is not as clear. Uh, this what about Biden, what about Hillary stuff is a pretty potent political argument, whatever you think about its legal or, or sort of logical implications. Um, and it, again, I think it's entirely fair to complain that Hillary Clinton was treated with kid gloves and Donald Trump wasn't. Um, but it's not a very good argument if, well, your your former presidential nominee violated the law, so why can't mine? It's not a not a particularly persuasive argument to me. But I know to lots of voters, uh, lots of Republicans who, uh, who who still think Trump was a great president and should be a, a great president again. This only strengthened their. This made him made them cleave more closely to him as the victim of uh, selective prosecution. So the political consequences, I don't know. I don't think they were great. I mean, I don't think it improved him overall in the long run. In my opinion, it's just a question of how much does it really hurt him. I'm not sure. I actually think it is possible that if there are charges out of the. Georgia case having to do with the, the run up to January 6th and the attempt to quote find enough votes to put him over the top in Georgia. If any of that has significant evidence to it and it can be shown that the president, while he was president, acted in a way that was an abuse of office, that might be more politically damaging, separate from the legal question, might be more politically damaging than the mis- mishandling of classified documents. I'm not sure. Let's talk about the the way that the announced candidates for the Republican nomination are handling this. Apparently, they uh, uh, fear offending Trump supporters, and yet uh, the general consensus is that while he uh, can certainly at this point in time be expected to get the nomination unless something changes, but he's probably not uh, likely to be elected uh, uh, when it comes to the general election. What's your view on that? Say that again. I'm sorry. Well, it's not likely that he would win the general election. Well, that's what people say. I mean, that's that's what I sort of think. But I am no longer confident to say, well, this could never happen. I could never happen. <laughs> because then it happens and you feel kind of silly. Uh, so, for example, I was looking at the recent polling that there's different polling, you know, different methodologies that need to model the 2024 election cycle, which is hard to do anyway, even right before the election, much less, a, you know, a year and a half earlier. And um, I don't see much difference in the polling, Biden versus Trump, Biden versus DeSantis. Now, if Biden isn't the nominee, I think that scrambles things a lot. But Biden's numbers against Trump and DeSantis are about the same. They're a little different. They wiggle around a little bit, but not statistically significant. Uh, Trump and and DeSantis, you might think, well, they're very different types of candidates. And one was the former president. And one is a lot of people don't know a lot about Ron DeSantis, but they know more than they'd ever wanted to know about Donald Trump. And yet the vote isn't radically different. The, the, The level of people who say they would vote for either Trump or for DeSantis, depending on the poll question, isn't all that different. Um, what we what we're living in right now is a 
is a starkly polarized electorate. There, there are people who aren't, who aren't fully on board with one or the other party, and that's important. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the people, the political bases, they're locked in, and uh, they're going to vote for Biden, even if they think lots of them actually do have doubts that Biden is up to the job, and they vote for him anyway. Lots of these Republicans know Trump is kind of a rascal and you know abused his power, doesn't tell the truth, and they'll vote for him anyway. Uh, now, the, what's going to settle this is this small but decisive group of people who dislike both men intensely. And right now, they're slightly more Biden than Trump. So that's why I think Biden would win if the election were replayed. But I'm not confident about that. But I think that's what would happen. Whereas if you ask that group about DeSantis, they're a little more DeSantis than Biden. So I think DeSantis is still the stronger candidate. But the point, the reason I go into detail about this example is that's about all you can say. This, this confidence, well, I know Ron DeSantis would beat Joe Biden, or I know Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump. I don't think anybody knows anything like that, that you can have an informed, you can have a feeling, you could have an informed guess or something. But if you have any confidence in your prediction, then you are a, you're, you're a much braver man than I. How do you uh, view the way that Christie is taking on Trump? Because he um, is I, he is he is out and out openly, uh, essentially saying anybody but Trump. He is. Um, well, Christie is going right at him, and I, I honestly don't think I, I don't I'm not sure how any Republican primary challenge can defeat a former president in the primary unless you go after the former president in a pretty aggressive way. So what Christie is doing is something like that has to be done if one were a Republican seeking to get the nomination over the former president, who has already got a lot of support. You've got to take that support down. You have to convince people who are currently saying they vote for Trump to have second thoughts. And I don't think you can do that with snide sort of knowing glances and, you know, subtle facial tics or something. You have to make a full-throated case for that. That's what Chris Christie is doing. I don't think he's going to be the nominee, but I do think something like the Christie argument would have to be sustained in order for Trump not to be the nominee. You have congressional leaders, both the Senate and the House, who are taking a different approach with their defense or support of Trump. They are. Um, there, there is, for many political leaders, I'm not talking about people who were in the Republican primary for president right now, but people who are in Congress and Senate, governors, things like that. There is not a lot of upside to spending your time attacking or critiquing Donald Trump. Uh, you don't get very many brownie points from the left. And you turn off Trump supporters on the right. Um, now, I don't personally agree. I, if I was in their shoes, I'd do something different, but it's notable that I'm not. I'm not an elected official. Don, I'd never get elected to anything. So <laughs> I'm not, I don't, I have the luxury of not worrying about this. But people who are in office, many of them, their, their view about this, the ones that I know, who I know are very Trump skeptical, very concerned about, think a different candidate should be at the top of the ticket, think Trump would not be a good president if he were, if he were elected, uh, et cetera. They think that, but they ju it's just not obvious to them that it does them any good to say it. Also, for many people who are in Congress, they genuinely care about the bills they're working on in Congress. 
and they didn't they don't want to be distracted by talking about the presidential field of 2024 when what they really want to talk about is their issue. Now, I don't think that applies to the Speaker of the House. I don't think that applies to Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate. I think they have different responsibilities. But these other members of Congress and certainly governors of states who are Republicans, um, I, I wish they would say more about Trump or about the, the situation we're in. But I understand the political calculation of, that they do not, because what they're focused on is their agenda, getting their bills passed, perhaps getting their majorities larger in their respective chambers. Great summary, John. Thank you so much. We've got another segment with John Hood, our guest, uh, and that will follow right after we take time out for these messages. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Now once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on the Carolina Eastmakers with John Hood, who's the president of the John William Pope Foundation. And he's always up to something in, in, uh, when he gets behind a typewriter. John, are you working on any? Because John not only writes fiction, he writes nonfiction books. Or I, I, do. I guess I could turn that around and say you not only write nonfiction books, but you write fiction books. So what are you working on these days before we get back to more serious topics? Well, I'm working on a, a third of my novels. Uh, these are historical fantasy novels set in early America. This one's called Water Folk, and it's primarily set during the Texas War of Independence and the U.S.-Mexican War of the 1840s and that sort of thing. So that's the that's the third book in the series. The first one did the Revolutionary War. The second one did the War of 1812 and other events in the early early 19th century. So I like to tell historical stories. I think they have important meanings. I'm trying to get people, particularly young people, uh, teens and young adults to learn more about their country. And if I can, if I need to use magic and dragons and giant battles to uh, get their attention, I will do it. Uh, uh, there ought to be something I could follow up with on that last part, but I'm going to skip that for the time being. <laughs> back to give it, no, getting you, no, to you give didn't us... know. I bet, Don, that you didn't know there was a giant sea monster in the York River at the Battle of Yorktown. I, I, and, I, and if you I had read have... water, if you read Mountain Folk, 
you would know what happened to the sea monster and whether General Cornwallis's sea monster trick worked or not. I, I must confess, I did not uh, have that at the top of my list when I was doing research. Uh, <laughs> uh, There's something else, John. I can live. I can live with it. I can live with it. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the General Assembly and. Uh, there are four topics that we want to get into the par uh, the parents bill of rights legislation the abortion situation sports betting and the transgender related legislation those are four issues that i would uh, like for you to share your thoughts and opinions on where the north carolina general assembly is going or has already gone well let's start with a bill that's already passed uh, which is the abortion bill uh, this would set uh, with some exceptions, set a limit of 12 weeks. And so uh, before that time, more or less, the right to abortion would be preserved in North Carolina. After that time, there would be uh, no legal right to abortion, except in a few cases. Uh, abortion would always be permissible under this bill for uh, cases of rape and incest, for example, life, saving the life of the mother. So I think the, the best way to describe this, this is, of course, part of a national drama that began last summer when the U.S. Supreme Court issued its Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision that established a federal right to an abortion. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled last year that there is no federal right to an abortion. It's just not it's not a matter that the U.S. Constitution speaks to not because it isn't important, but because it inherently involves a sort of counterclaims of individual rights. A, a pregnant mother's right to control what is happening in her body and an unborn baby's right to life. And that's a dispute, says the court, that is not something this federal court, federal constitution speaks to. And it's something that the states in their constitutions and their laws need to address. That's all the Dobbs decision did. It didn't do anything about abortion. It simply said there's no federal right here. This is not a federal constitutional matter. So that left states the requirement to do nothing, perhaps, or lots of things. Some states, some state legislatures have gone very far to ban abortions in their states. There's uh, not 100% bans, but virtual bans of abortions in several states. Uh, other states have gone, been fairly restrictive with uh, abortion limitations that ended six weeks, a much earlier period. North Carolina didn't do this. North Carolina, uh, there were uh, members of the House and Senate Republicans who negotiated with each other. They had different views on this question, and they spent a lot of time together and came up with what they described as a compromise position, the 12-week limitation with some additional rules. And the Democrats were very upset. You can understand why they were upset that they weren't even part of this initial set of negotiations among the Repu within the Republican caucuses. But they did get their ability to speak and, and argue their case in, on, the on the legislation in the General Assembly. They didn't prevail. The Republicans have a supermajority. And so they did enact the bill. The governor uh, doesn't favor the bill. The bill is currently, as we speak, it's under federal review. I don't know what, as we speak, I don't know what the federal judge has issued, but I think by the time people listen to this, they may have heard some decision from the federal judge about it, but it won't be the last word. So that's the, that's the bill. It has a lot of different provisions that we probably don't have time to get into, and some of which I don't even, it's not even something I know a lot about. But I would describe this bill, this, this would reduce the right to abortion in North Carolina somewhat, 
but not dramatically. That would be my that would be my take on the bill. Uh, but that's not the way some of my Democratic friends uh, see it. So it's a controversial issue. Will definitely play a role politically, just as it did in the 2022 midterm cycle. It will be a major issue in the governor's race, in legislative races, and other races in North Carolina next year. That's the abortion bill, a bit, pretty big deal. Now, the uh, some of these other bills, I, I will mention in particular the transgender athlete, the transgender sports bill, and then the transgender treatment bill. Trainer sports bill, I think, uh, is has happened. It's going to be implemented. I frankly think that this is where probably the vast majority of North Carolinians are on the question of transgender athletes, which is essentially uh, uh, young people are free to play sports. Uh, but if you are biological male, regardless of your gender identity, if you're biological male, you're not going to be allowed to play women's sports in schools or universities. Uh, for the obvious reason that there are, on average, significant phys physiological differences between biological males and biological females. People are uncomfortable with the uh, unfairness and potential even sometimes safety questions here. And so that's what the legislature did. Doesn't preclude, for example, a biological female from playing on a biological male sport, like being a place kicker on a football team, whatever. That's not, not prohibited, but it is prohibited in the other direction. The, the other bill, though, is tougher. This has to do with uh, treating ch children, you know, minors who identify or have been identified as transgender or uh, non-binary or, or whatever the, the, the statement is, that should they be able to access, for example, drugs that block the onset of, pu of puberty or in an extreme case, some sort of surgical intervention. These, we're talking not about adults, where the legislature is not attempting to legislate here about what adults can do with their body. This is about minors. Now, obviously, if you didn't have parental consent, this would be a pretty straightforward case. And again, I think the vast majority of North Carolinians would agree that if some minor from Pennsylvania or some other state, you know, leaves home, run away, runs, runs away from home, comes to North Carolina and demands surgery or demands puberty blocking drugs or something, uh, that should not be legal, of course, because they're minors and they can't make decisions without parental authority. The tough part here is what if the parents say yes? What if the parents say we would like our 12-year-old child to receive a, a puberty blocking drug uh, or a, a surgical intervention or something? Uh, is that okay? Because we usually, of course, defer to parents what the parents' decisions are about children's health and well-being. We we properly defer to parents. This is where the traditional Republican uh, championing of parental rights runs up against this other Republican and other concerns about uh, the irreversibility of some of this. If you give someone a puberty blocking drug and it affects their the way their body develops. And when they're 12, that's what they thought they wanted. And when they're 22, they're devastated to discover, you know, they've decided they've grown out of their feelings of gender dysphoria, which is common. Most, my reading of the literature, most young people who experience feelings of dysphoria, feeling like they're like a boy in a girl's body or a girl in a boy's body or something like that, most people grow out of that. What if you did? and you were 22 or 23 and you wanted to have a child, your biological female, and because of some uh, 
pharmaceuticals that you ingested earlier in your life that made it impossible? Uh, what if you were male, biological male, and went through a period of where you felt dysphoric? And you had some, uh, you took some pharmaceuticals, and they affected your voice, your development of your uh, private parts, and that affected the quality of your life. That's the difficulty here. What if these decisions have irreversible effects? At some level, say some of the advocates of this bill, the legislature, the state should intervene, even if parents want something done, if the results could be life changing, life altering like this. This is a tough issue, but I'm afraid at this point it's an inescapable issue. And so that's where that that's what that bill is about. It I think listeners should really kind of struggle with this bill because it's it can't be I don't think it has as obvious an answer as the athlete bill does. I mean, I still have an opinion about it. I'm just saying it's a much more uh, difficult issue. Finally, you mentioned the gaming bill. This is the, the sports gambling bill that has passed. Uh, essentially, it, it is now going to be legal in North Carolina to bet on games, bet on college football games. Uh, I am a advocate of personal liberty, so I, I'm generally sympathetic to legalizing gambling. But I'm not happy about it because I'm anti-gambling. You know, you you get to be in a free society. You get to believe that people have the right to do something that is bad for them. You know, and that's what I think is true here. I think that gambling uh, can. I think some people become addicted to it and blow lots of money. I think everybody that does it, I think it somewhat cheapens the the uh, play of sports to have all this money riding on. I don't like it. I would never do it. It's none of my business to tell somebody else what to do, but I am sad that this bill will likely encourage some people to blow their money, waste their money gambling on sports. But uh, I have to be consistent that I I think there are many things that are legal that I think are dumb. (laughs) And it is not it is my view is that is not my role. It's not the role of any group of people in a free society. To prevent other adults, again, we were talking about minors earlier, that's kind of a different, more challenging issue. But I don't think adults can be nannied by the state, even if they deserve to be. I just don't think that's the appropriate role of the state. So that's my view about that bill and about a related push. There hasn't really been clarity about this yet, but there has been some talk of legalizing additional casinos and having more casino gambling around North Carolina. Uh, again, I, I don't like special favors. I don't like giving certain groups or certain parts of the state the ability to have a casino and other places not have them. I don't like any of that. Uh, that's the system that that we've sort of stumbled our way into, I'm afraid. Now, the Lottery Commission will be in charge of the sports betting, so the state of North Carolina will gain revenue. Yeah, I mean, again, when there is a business going on that I'm not a big fan of, but it's none of my business what people do, of course, they should. Those businesses should be taxed just like any other business. That's not what this is, does. This this sports gambling bill has gives the state a pretty large financial stake in gambling, which I don't like that either. That's one of the reasons I didn't like a state lottery. I mean, that is not legalizing gambling. That is the government encouraging people to gamble and making money off of it, which I'm opposed to. And that part of this bill, I would have been opposed to as well. Interesting. Well, those are four uh, pieces of legislation that are either have, in some cases, have been passed, in other cases, still under consideration. And as we said earlier, uh, probably at the end of this legislative session, session, there will be a special session to consider the redistricting matters. 
And so the General Assembly will be in session one way or the other, probably till maybe as late as November. It, well, maybe. I mean, it's, it's going to this official session. will end. I should say, by the way, on the gambling bill is a good example of where not everything is strictly partisan. There were uh, Democrats and Republicans for the gambling bill and against the gambling bill. Yeah. Our guest is John Hood. And of course, as you know, John has been with us a number of times. We have one final segment. And I want to talk to you about polling, amongst other things, in the final segment. And we will talk about that, as well as uh, maybe a brief look at the North Carolina economy, population growth, and how North Carolina stacks up nationally on on, uh, on our growth and what it's going to do to affect the future of North Carolina. And we'll do that when we come back with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is John Hood. Those of you who listen to the program know that he's been our guest on this program for many, many times. Uh, John, of course, is uh, uh, is a proud conservative, and he. Uh, I, I always state where my guests are coming from because we like to have guests that uh, uh, represent both points of view from time to time. Uh, but I think it's important for the guests to know exactly where they're coming from. Uh, and so we always point that out. John, we were talking about uh, the the way that the American people are looking uh, at uh, politics and government. And as you pointed out, we are very polarized these days, or at least the polling says that. Now, I would like your view and opinion on polling because we're finding out in our polling uh, and radio stations do a lot of polling about what kind of music we play and who listens to what stations and so forth. But we're finding people are more and more resistant to uh, participating in polling. So my concern about polling is, are the people who are participating, do they represent an average viewpoint wherever they're coming from? Or are they uniquely different to the point that the polling may be misleading? Well, that's a great question. It's a question that people in the polling industry are struggling with. Oh, yes. 
Um, and, and one of the things, one of the reasons they're struggling, I mean, you're a client, so you know this, because people become less and less, have become less and less likely to answer phones or even respond to emails, actually, even to the online panel approach, um, it is becoming more and more expensive to get somebody's opinion, an individual's opinion. So if you're trying to poll 800 people, it costs a lot more to get to that 800 people than it used to. Because you have to call so many more people, you have to send so many more emails out. So it is more expensive to do polling at a grand scale. One of the ways that pollsters have coped with that is reduce the size of the, the, the length of the questionnaire, which means they don't get into enough detail, or they go for a really a fairly small sample size, which means that the margin of sampling error is quite large. Or, and this is the biggest problem, they essentially abandon truly randomized polling in the first place. They recruit people to get to a certain panel that they think represents the public. But because it wasn't truly random, the selection of the individual you're interviewing wasn't truly random, it is not really a scientifically representative, it's not a really representative poll. So even saying that there's a margin of sampling error is incorrect. You can't have a sampling error if the sample is not itself actually <laughs> random. And so you'll notice that a lot of pollsters, they don't say that the margin of error, they say the confidence interval. And that is a little bit of a, frankly, a kind of a fudge word. It's not meaningless, but it suggests that these polls are not quite as representative as they may have been in the past. Now, all that having been said, this is going to sound kind of weird, but the poll you should worry about the least, you still worry about it. But the polls you should worry about the least are those about the presidential election. Because lots of people follow that, they have some meaningful opinion about it, and there are people who, if they get a sense that somebody's going to ask them about their beloved President Biden or their beloved President Trump, they will take your call. They will answer the email. Yep. It's actually harder to get people to answer questions about, you know, do you favor or oppose Joe Blow for Attorney General? They don't know that they didn't even know you elected attorney general. They never heard of Joe Blow. Some of them don't answer at all. The ones that do answer, it's purely random. They don't even really mean it. And so a lot of the polls about things like obscure races, uh, congressional races, and issues, you ask people in great detail about House Bill 253 or something, they don't know what you're talking about. They have absolutely no idea unless they're a weirdo like me and they follow politics very closely. And so then you have to tell them what it's about. And once you start telling people, I'm going to ask you about the North Carolina General Assembly's recently enacted abortion ban. Or I'm going to ask you about North Carolina's recently enacted restrictions on late term abortions. You say, I just described that legislation in two different ways. If you describe it as a ban, you're going to get people who don't follow the issue very closely. Like, ban? I'm not in favor of banning all abortions. And if you say restrictions on late-term abortion, which is primarily what the bill does, then people say, oh, well, I'm for that. I mean, I don't like abortions, you know, in the later in the pregnancy. And so once you start telling, in quote, informing your respondents about issues they don't follow very closely or races they don't follow very closely, you're kind of monkeying around with the results. You can yeah, guide it, people it, one way it, or the other. And it would seem to me that people who are already polarize strongly one way or the other will be far more interested in participating in polling than those who are still 
may be questioning which way they believe. That's true. It's it's e- easier to get hardcore partisans. At least that's what people thought. Now, one recent clear polling error has been undersampling Trump supporters. So these are hardcore political people, and they have such a level of distrust of media organizations and universities in particular, uh, because they see both properly as sort of significantly left of center in their average orientation. So they get a a poll question or they get a phone call from a university or a media outlet. They just don't take it. And then you don't have a certain kind of Republican. You still get Republicans that will take the call, but maybe ones who are less Trump supportive. And so you you end up sort of somewhat under uh, undercounting Trump support. That has been a problem in the past. I don't know if it'll be, but uh, pollsters have tried to adjust for that by waiting their their sample accordingly. Pollsters have waited, that is, uh, multiplied their not their respondents by various uh, percentages. They've done that for decades. Okay, even back in the so-called good old days of polling, uh, not everybody was equally likely to be home at their landline between the before cell phones. I mean, people were not equally likely to be home between the hours of you know six and nine on a weeknight when polling used to happen all the time. For example, people who work nights, people who go to school at night, elderly people who go to bed at 530, you know. And so they were undersampled. And so the pollsters had to adjust for that. That was always the case. They adjusted for race sometimes. They adjusted for age. They adjusted for a variety of things. Now they have to do so many other kinds of adjustments to try to get their sample to be, quote, representative, that a lot of times that sort of determines what their poll says. And everybody gets suspicious because it looks like they're monkeying around with the numbers. They actually have to do some of that or it, the polling is useless. But once they start doing that, it's hard to stop. And so I know yeah. when, when, you're, when you're commissioning market research for radio stations or companies commissions, survey results for brands, it's becoming increasingly expensive because people don't want to answer polls. And because you've moved to online panels, which is understandable, it's a lot cheaper to do that. Send someone an email and say, opt in and we'll ask you these questions. And if you take the poll, we'll give you a $5 gift certificate or something. The problem there is that you probably don't get a representative sample either. There are certain kinds of people who will respond to you know, random emails from somebody they don't know offering them a $5 coupon. <laughs> and so they have to wait those samples too. So it's 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 a tough thing. But here's what I would say about polarization more generally. We are at the same time clearly polarized on a partisan basis, and we are subject to too much hand-wringing about polarization. And let me let me explain what I mean. Uh, lots of people have a strong preference for the political party, particularly when it comes to the presidency. That's true. And there's just there are fewer people willing to split their tickets than there was a generation or two ago. We used to routinely have, you know, many people who would vote Republican for president, Democrat for governor, or Democrat for president, Republican for Senate or whatever. And that happens, still happens today, but it's a much smaller population. That's a way of thinking about polarization, that the base vote for the R, the base vote for the D is rather high. But when you say, well, we're all polarized on all these issues, actually, that is not so much true. Lots of people have to sort of be cajoled into taking a position. Abortion is a good example where many people's views are rather complicated, uh, 
that they have sort of conflicting principles they're trying to resolve in their own heads. They have stipulations. They're not sure what the definitions are. They don't know the difference between a 12 week and a 10 week and an eight week and a six week. That when we force people to take positions about issues that are fraught with complexity like abortion or issues they just don't follow very closely. Should, should we have a cryptocurrency or not? Should, uh, should we have free trade agreements with, the, with Japan and Korea, that sort of thing? Lots of people don't think lots about these issues very often. And so when you poll them, you'll get an answer, but you shouldn't assume those are really hard numbers. If you've asked the question a different way, you might get a different answer. And next week, you might get a different answer. So a lot of these polls that suggest that Americans, North Carolinians are completely divided on all these issues and there's no middle ground. That's not true. That's the, the polls in those cases are exaggerating the polarization. They're exaggerating the differences because they're sort of artificially making people take a view, choose between two alternatives. And it doesn't really reflect how they really feel. And maybe they don't feel at all very much about the issue at all. John, we've got about a minute and a half for you to com uh, comment on a a thing that is going to be dominating the news in a big way in the next couple of years. Uh, and I'd, I'd like for you to sort of condense your thoughts to about a minute and a half, because that's about all we've got left. Okay. And that's the term artificial intelligence. It's scary. Well, it's scary for most people. For me, I'm looking forward to getting some intelligence artificially, which, which <laughs> I have obviously always needed, or so says, you know, Mrs. Hood. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think AI is a is an inevitable development. People, science fiction authors have been speculating about this for a hundred years. So people who are trying to wrap their I've never thought of that before. They just need to read more science fiction. But this has been explored many, many times already. What does it mean? It means that many things will get a lot easier to do. We will have tremendous benefits from this: health benefits, economic benefits, gains in productivity. It will be fantastic, except it also poses significant risks, privacy risks, risks of displacing people from jobs. That they'll find other jobs, but it'll be difficult in the short run. And there are some dehumanizing aspects of AI that we're going to have to grapple with. But I think it's inevitable. I think it does bring significant benefits. We will have to think very carefully about our policy responses to it. And just speaking as someone who teaches at university level, we also have to change the way we teach and how we test because AI will make it too easy to cheat. Interesting. Well, John, uh, we're going to hear a lot about this in the next couple of years. And it's going to be interesting to see how we progress in the area of, of, of controlling artificial intelligence. Our guest has been John Hood. And uh, John, we certainly appreciate you being with us. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. Those of you who are listening to the half-hour version, there's two segments that you missed, and you can pick those up on Carolina Newsmakers. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises me that he'll have another interesting guest again next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. Again, that uh, web address is carolinanewsmakers.com. So the next week, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.